<laughs> if you were like, an advanced spiritual being, just, he could just show you what an animal you were. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, no. and, and he did it with such, he just went right to, you know, right to it. And he just did it with such, you know, um, he was just did it so definitively. I mean, yeah. there was no doubt about it. it. You know, he could just see it. Yeah. And know it. See so, it. Know it. Yeah. So as I thought about Chris in that setting, follow my lead. Uh, oh, and then he said, teach and serve. Well, that really kind of irritated me because I thought I've been teaching and serving for 30 years now. Yeah, I'm pretty a, tired of it. As a I want to have some fun. As a celebrated doctor, I've been yeah, right. serving yeah. all my life. What do you mean? I mean, I'm here at this conference and I've been working my buns off to try and prepare you know, presentations and, you know, I, the whole spring, winter and spring, I was going to conferences teaching. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Teach and serve was what he did. And I was to follow his lead, not my own lead. And all of a sudden there was this amazing feeling of lightness that came over me. And I thank Christopher. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hi, welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Just a little note at the beginning to ask you to remind you to subscribe and like and leave your comments and join our mailing list if you're interested in knowing more about what all the subjects that we speak about on the show. Not only do I have brilliant conversations with amazing people with incredible life stories and experiences, but we explore this further in the Inner Sanctum, which is an online group that we have or you can have a reading with me and I can help you tap into your own genius creation, your own speak to your own spirit guides and speak to spirit and anything that you want really. So just a little reminder that all this is available on karenswain.com and I'm chatting with Dr. Leo Gallen today about his book Already Here, about his journey with Christopher and it's just beautiful and profound. So enjoy the show. Welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive Expanding Consciousness with Karen Swain. So great to be with you again. I have another extraordinary man to introduce you to today. His name is Dr. Leo Gallen, and he's the author of a book called Already Here about his son, Christopher. I just want to say welcome to the show, Dr. Gallen. It, thank you so much for having me on the show. It, it's so great to be talking with you. Can I call you Leo? Sure, of course. Great. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Gallen here. I've got his bio. He's, you're the author of a few books, The Allergy Solution with Jonathan, Jonathan Gallen. That's obviously your son, yeah? Yes. And The Fat-Resistant Diet, also with Jonathan, Jonathan, Power Healing and Super Immunity for Kids. So amazing books. 
So Dr. Leo Gallen specializes in the evolution and treatment of patients of all ages with complex chronic disorders. He views the relationship between doctor and patient as a partnership that empowers people to take control of their own health. Dr. Gallen is a pioneer in studying the impact of intestinal microbes. He has received international recognition for developing innovative in a, I can't say that word, in nutrition therapies and treats uh, autoimmune, inflammatory, allergic infection, gastrointestinal disorders, as well as, as he describes his work in numerous scientific articles and textbook chapters. A graduate of Harvard University, the New York University School of Medicine, Dr. Gallen is a broad certificate in internal medicine. Is that right? Broad, broad certified. Certified. Sorry, I'm not up with the Sohal allopathic system. He is listed in Leading Physicians of the World and America's Top Doctors in 2017, awarded the Albert Nelson... Oh, you'll have to talk to Marcus. <laughs> Albert, you know, it's the, the guy that founded Who's Who. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Can I put you on hold for one second? Can, yep. Is that possible? So already here describes the death of Dr. Gallen's son, Christopher, at the age of 22, the direct evidence of life after death that he showed him and the communication he had with him after his death, which totally changed your life, understanding of the universe, of life and its meaning and of heaven. In life, Christopher was a brain-damaged special needs child who challenged everyone he knew with his unpredictable behaviour and uncanny insights. Oh, this is what I love about Christopher. After his death, he revealed to Dr. Gallant, to Leo, the real purpose of his life, to be a spiritual master who taught others by confounding their assumptions and expectations. He showed Dr. Gallant that the human soul is indestructible and that the universe depends on its existence on the immortality and individual consciousness because of because the universe itself is an act of love christopher's wisdom is uh, was revealed to dr gallen in three gifts which he calls the gifts of opposite the gift of presence the gift of timelessness and he came to realize that these three gifts were not intended just for him alone. They contained ancient wisdoms held sacred, held sacred in many traditions. And Chris intended for Dr. Gallen to share them with others. Already here was written under his direction. I have to say, it's absolutely true. You know, you sent me the book to read and it's just... It's just profound. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about Christopher? Can I just ask you, how old would Christopher be now if he was still here? Well, he'd be about, uh, he'd be about 52. Okay, yeah. I thought it was about 50 years ago reading the book. I, I sort of didn't do the math, but I'm thinking early 50s, yeah. And he died at 22 about 30 years ago. 30 yeah. Years ago. Yeah. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit? So this is what I love about this because you've been, you're so celebrated as this wonderful doctor and, you know, the science profession and allopathic sort of is so, um, well, it's coming on board, isn't it? But it's so, 
sort of thinks all this afterlife talking to spirits thing is so woo-woo, you know, and, and then you've had this exponential experience yourself, which I love. Well, here's, to begin with, here's the thing that's important to understand about science. Science is an attempt to understand the world rationally based upon experience and experiment. But experiment is based on experience. It's only one subset of experience. Now, the problem with most scientists is that they don't really take that definition to its limit. So if there is an experience that is not understood by the, within the framework of knowledge that has been acquired, it just gets dismissed. But that's not being a scientist. To, so what I describe in already here are experiences that I had, and one of them in particular, to some extent the defining experience, because it makes its way to the cover of the book, was an objective experience. Nobody um, can doubt that this actually happened. So how do you interpret this? How do you evaluate it? Do you just dismiss it and say, well, that was a real quirk. So um, no one else has had an experience quite like this. Although that's not true because since I published already here, I've heard from a lot of people that have had experiences like that. Um, or do you try to understand what this means? And as a truly committed scientist, I, I decided I have to understand what this means. I have to take this in. Um, and, and the taking in began with the moment of Christopher's death and the, subject, the more subjective experience that I had at that time. Yeah, yeah. But, but he, absolutely reinforced by the objective experience three days later. Yeah. Well, do you want to tell people who haven't read the book what happened? Obviously, Christopher, Christopher is one of triplets, which is amazing in itself. Three boys. Yeah, right. Were they uh, identical twins or non-identical? No, no, they were fraternal, <laughs> but they looked pretty much alike. Right. Although Christopher really did not look like his brothers because he had been brain damaged shortly after birth. He didn't grow and develop the same way. Mm -hmm. And he had sustained so many injuries in his life because of his physical awkwardness that his face was, he looked like an old prize fighter. I mean, he had so many scars on his face. Um, and when he finished his schooling, we uh, arranged for him to go to a community in the Berkshire Mountains. Now we live in New York City and he was about 150 miles away in Western Massachusetts on a farm uh, that was part of a community based on a principle called life sharing in which people who were brain injured in one way or another lived with people who were not and they shared their lives and Chris participated in the life of the farm. And he had been there for nine months when he wow. died. That figure might be significant if you're into numerology, but um, uh, he, it was a cold November morning. It happens to have been All Souls Day. So if you're into 
um, that kind of meaning, maybe that's significant. He um, had gone for a hike in the woods with a couple of people from the farm. And uh, he had seizure had, Christopher had a seizure disorder, among other problems. And what we believe happened was that he went off from the small group he was with, uh, had a seizure, tumbled down an embankment, and drowned in a stream that was almost dry. It had about two inches of very cold water in it. Mm. Um, I had gone out for lunch with my wife to um, have lunch with my one of my other sons, Jeff, who had just started a new job, and came back to the office, and my wife, Christina, was going to come over afterwards. When I returned, my um, office manager said, we had a phone call um, from a hospital in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Christopher's in the emergency room. They're resuscitating him, um, which was shocking, of course. I called there, and they told me that he had come in basically in cardiac arrest. He appeared to have drowned. Uh, his lungs were full of ice-cold water. As a result, his body temperature was very low, and they were trying to warm him. And I asked if they could continue warming him until uh, and resuscitating him until his body temperature came up, because it, his temperature was like 68 degrees. So he was being preserved virtually. Um, it was like cryopreservation, and that protects the brain and the heart. And so I said, just warm him up and see. What the, what's happening. And then I went, I sat in my office waiting for my wife to come over. Um, you, I tried seeing a patient who had come from a long distance to see me. It's impossible to function under those circumstances. Um, I mean, I couldn't think straight. I couldn't, could, I could communicate, but I couldn't interpret any data in front of me. Um, my wife came over and I told her what, her, what had happened. We were devastated, um, crying. We both sat in my office waiting for word from the emergency room. And I don't know how long. It felt as if we couldn't move. Everything was heavy. We were just leaden. You could barely breathe the air. The light in the room seemed so dim. Um, and I'm sure other people have experienced that feeling of helplessness and sadness. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. All of a sudden, Christina and I had exactly the same experience. And we both stood up at the same time. There was this electrical feeling in the room as if um, we were near a high voltage wire or lightning was about to strike. And we could feel the buzzing. And um, then we both had the same vision we didn't so much see it with our eyes as with our mind. The room was gone. There was this intense golden light that filled our vision. And the source of that light was Christopher. It was a being with Christopher's face, but not a well-defined body, not arms or legs. It was more of a kind of oblong shape, mm -hmm. which when I thought about it later, well, that's the shape of a ghost. Right, you know, when you think about cartoons of a ghost, mm -hmm. it's a sort of oblong shape with a face at the apex and no arms or legs. And he was rising up. It was like as if there were a rocket being fired out of the ground into space with the same 
amount of power. Um, what was so amazing about it, but his face was lovely and smiling and beautiful. And the most amazing part about it was the blissful joy that emanated from this being, which was unlike anything I had ever experienced on earth, even in moments of intense joy. This was, I mean, literally, it was a supernatural joy. It was amazing. It was there for a few seconds, I think, and then he was gone. And the first feeling you had was, oh, I want to go with you. <laughs> you know, I want to stay here. This is absolutely amazing. Right. And we both said, well, he's gone. And we knew the double meaning that that had. The phone was ringing. I knew who would be on the other end. It was the doctor from the ER saying, well, we've warmed him up. This cardiogram still shows a flat line. I said, yeah, thank you very much. I mean, we knew that he was, that he was, had passed on. Yeah. Now we tried to process what that means. And, um, you know, so I, my first thought was, wow. I mean, I knew that Christopher was pretty amazing because he mm -hmm. was such a character, mm -hmm. but I never imagined this. Is there a being like that inside of all of us? Mm -hmm. um, and w it did nothing to stop the grief that we felt at his death. I can't imagine what that would have been like without this, however. Right. Because it was so, it was, what a gift to, to have this vision. How lucky we are. I mean, so this is, throughout this whole episode, there's this confusion of feeling. Yeah. You know, between joy and pain. Yeah. Between and of course ecstasy we had to, and pain. Yeah, ecstasy and pain. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had to explain this to his brothers and other people in the family and decide what are we going to do about a funeral? I mean, we had never thought of planned plan for that. And we decided that we would bury Chris in the Berkshires near that community that he had been so important to mm. for the last few months of his life because he'd had a real impact there. Mm -hmm. And so we went up to great Barrington, Massachusetts to, um, we made plans for the funeral. Um, and we went up there and got made, met with people in the community and had friends come up and spent a couple of days sort of celebrating Christopher's life mm. and arranging flowers for the graveside and getting people up for a funeral mass and a priest that we knew and some beautiful singers that we knew who came up uh, and at a, a kind of an out-of-character moment, I ordered up 21 yellow helium balloons to be released at his graveside from uh, the florist. Um, and that, I don't know where that idea came from. I'd seen somebody walking out of there with red and blue helium balloons. And they were a real, you know, so I said, well, let, okay, let we're going to get balloons. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, because you say this in the book too. An out of character idea, you know, these yellow. I don't know where that idea. Where do you think that idea came from? Well, it clearly came from Christopher and from <laughs> what what happened as a result of those balloons. Yeah, yeah. Which was the second part of this proof. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the balloons were we were placed next to the grave, 
um, and they were tied to a sandbag with each balloon had a yellow ribbon and the yellow ribbon was tied very, they were tied very close to the sandbag because mm. they had been taken into the church and then they'd been placed in a funeral van along with a coffin. So there wasn't a lot of room for them. They were hard enough to control mm -hmm. and I couldn't untie them. So what I did was to cut them, somebody there had a penknife and I cut the, the ribbons with a penknife. Um, and so each balloon had a, a very short, short kind of jagged yellow ribbon attached to it. it was not the elegant effect that I had looked for and then at the end of the of the sir of the graveside service um, we all released the balloons at once into the air one of them had popped and my youngest son Jordan who was eight years old said that one was Christopher's <laughs> and uh, and so we released them it was a windy day and they all went up very fast and blew away very quickly and then the next day we returned to New York um, we were driving home through Manhattan where we live and took because the traffic was so heavy that day we took an alternate route which took us past Columbus Circle which is a landmark in Manhattan and Christopher Columbus had a certain significance for Christopher because they shared the, the same name mm -hmm. and at a place where we used to live there was a statue of uh, of Columbus and it had his Italian name Cristoforo Colombo oh. and so I would call Christopher Cristoforo and he would burst out laughing because okay. it just sounded so strange so we came to a red light as we were entering Columbus Circle and a yellow balloon descended from the sky hovered right in front of our car, about 10 feet, just out of reach. And I couldn't have gotten out of the car anyway. There was, the, the road was packed and the light was turning to green and, um, and then just kind of bobbed away. The balloon looked like it was a helium balloon about a day old and attached to it was a short yellow ribbon, about 12 inches long, which was kind of um, crudely cut at the end. Mm -hmm. My first thought when I saw it was, wow, isn't that a coincidence? Someone must have lost a yellow balloon in Central Park. We were a block away from Central Park. Yeah. Of course, this was a cold, windy day in November in New York. In Australia, it might be a nice, nicer weather. Here, it, you know, that's the late fall. Yeah. Um, and if it had been lost in the park, it would be rising up. It wouldn't be settling down. Um, Jordan's immediate reaction was, that's my balloon. I mean, there were five people in the car. Everybody saw it. This was a real physical event. And I wanted to grab it, but I, it was impossible. It was too far away. Um, the traffic was starting to move, so we ju I just let it go. And I mean, that was just mind boggling. It was one thing to have this vision of Christopher's soul at the moment of his death. Yeah. But the thought that somehow he had he had guided this balloon from Great Barrington to New York City and it had descended at Columbus Circle a place of special significance at the exact moment we were driving into it I mean that was pretty how do you explain that he's a um, clever little thing isn't he <laughs> well he is he is I mean I couldn't really come up with a natural explanation that 
hell made any more sense than Jordan's explanation. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jordan, there were three kids in the car. Mm-hmm. And to them, it was like, well, of course, I was one of the balloons. So yeah, said. yeah. Yeah, and of course, Christopher said it. What could be more natural? Yeah, I yeah. could not scientifically come up with a better explanation than that. Oh, you scientists. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so that really, I mean, that just really changed my attitude towards death. And, really? It's, it's, and so, it's so interesting what you say here because us humans, we're so stubborn. You know, you have this unbelievable, ecstatic, blissful experience of Christopher exiting the matrix, (laughs) I I like to say. And it still kind of didn't penetrate the logical mind. Right. It it, it was like, oh, my God. But then, like, okay, now we have to get on with grieving and organizing funerals. And and it's kind of like, and then it's like they keep knocking at our door, don't they? Until yeah. we open it. It felt to me as if Christopher were, were laughing at me and he was saying, mm. hey, I know you, Leo. You know, sure, I gave you this gift, but given enough time, you would find some way to dismiss it. To right. conclude that, well, this was really a shared and hallucination due right. to how close I am to Christina and the intenseness of the moment. Right. So. I just want you to try to explain this away. And it was Christopher the trickster, the way he, you know, one of the things that I subsequently came to realize is that Chris was very much like a joker, like Mm -hmm. the kind of spiritual guide that teaches um, by um, confounding what your beliefs are rather than lecturing or being an obvious um, guru? Look, you said, you asked, you posed the question. There's so much more to this story and we'll get, and we'll get through it, but there's just so much to talk about too. You posed the question when you saw his soul, is this Christopher's soul or is this all our souls? You know, like what answer did you receive to that question? Well, well I didn't hear anything then. I mean, oh. I wasn't, it was a thought, and I wasn't ask, asking it of him. Subsequently, in one of the conversations that we had a few years later, he said to me, I'm just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, and that was at a point when I had come to realize how extraordinary he was, is. Absolutely. When I read and, the book, I'm just thinking, this is a master soul. You know, yeah, like, yes, we are absolutely. all the same. We are all master souls to some extent, but there's a level of mastery that we allow while we're living our physical lives. And what I love about this story is that from our logical mainstream perspective, we look at someone like Christopher, who's deemed as brain damaged, as not masterful in life. Do you know what I mean? And yet there was more master, there was, you know, there was more of the guru, the master in this child, in this young man than the predominant human race, you know, like he just... That's what I came to realize. Yeah. You know, we always knew, um, you know, Chris is really pretty amazing. And if he hadn't been brain damaged, what would he have been like? He would have been so smart. A ridiculous thought, really, because Chris's role in the world was to be 
who he was, exactly. which included the damage and the mastery and the damage were so closely united and Absolutely. tied together. And, and he taught me so much about the meaning of mastery, yeah. about what having a successful life really is. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, to this day, I, I came to realize that Christopher is so much more advanced than I am, and which is fine with me. It is such a blessing to have had an advanced soul like Christopher in my life, to still know him, to know that I am with him in the universe. I mean, it's a real comfort. And, can, can and there say, are advanced okay. souls like that for all of us. I, I don't want to interrupt, but, um, but I do that all the time. People are always telling me I do that all the time. Uh, but he's just saying something. There's, he's just, because, um, you know, I talk to spirit. He's just saying that he, he, that statement, Christopher is so much more advanced than me. He's saying, not true, Dad. <laughs> not true. He's saying the only difference between you and me is the logical mind. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I could have done what Chris did in life if I could have, how I would have handled the burden that he had to bear during those 22 years. I, you know, I mean, I view my life as being pretty fortunate. I've, um, and um, the disappointments, the, he just handled them with just an aplomb and a bravado and, and a, just, Okay. An unquenchable spirit. But this is the thing that we do when we celebrate the intellect so highly. We see someone who has not got a celebrated intellect as being burdened. So somebody who's uh, mentally challenged. But he just says no burden at all. He says... <laughs> That's true, actually. The burden, there life. is more burden having this powerfully strong intellect that worries and challenges and criticizes and judge. He says that's much more of a burden for a soul having a human incarnation than a soul who's free of that. So look at Down syndrome children, look at all sorts of like mental challenges. They're free from that burden. They have a freedom. They have a freedom yes. that we can only dream of. Like, that that really is true. Yeah, that's true. And he did. He said that to Christina in one way, and when I was working on the book, he said it to me in other ways. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, just just such a beautiful soul. Okay, so uh, so the, the 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 balloon really knocked your socks off. And w what started happening inside your internal dialogue when? when you were experiencing this, like what, what was cogs were turning things? Were well, it was, I mean, I didn't exactly know how to process this or what to do about it. Right. And the way that I dealt with it, I, and there was still this tremendous grief right. at the loss of Christopher, the flesh and blood boy. The fleshy one. Yeah. And the way that I would keep returning to these events, almost as if they were drugs to, you know, like, I would try to remember every, 
um, mini second of yeah. each experience yeah. and, and, and relive it. Like, oh, I just want to keep reliving that and reliving that. Yeah. Well, you could only do that for so long, but um, that was my initial response. Mm-hmm. And I cut way back on my workload and I spend more time with my family. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Christopher and told stories about all the quirky, funny, um, weird things that he would used to do. Um, and then, you know, after a few months, it was I was working, I was lecturing, I was doing research. Yeah. It was back to the whole ball game and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of, and I didn't have any more visits from Christopher. Right. And so I was kind of wondering, okay, well, where is Christopher now? What's happening with him? Now, my wife, Christina, on the other hand, would have these moments when she would say, I feel Christopher's presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's far more intuitive than I am. And I, would, I wouldn't feel anything when she said that, but I would try to enter into the spirit of that moment and you know, she'd have all these experiences and it was like, well, I'm not really feeling it, but I'm not going to ruin it and say anything. I'm, yeah, sure. You know, and (laughs) that went on for a few years. Um, And of course, with time, you're so busy with the rest of your life and raising a family and living in New York City, which is a very hectic place, Mm -hmm. having a career and and all of that, you know, life returns to the way it had been. Yep. And Then about five years later, I had an experience. I was flying to Los Angeles from New York. And now I've done that trip many, many times. This was the only time the the flight path of the plane went directly over the Grand Canyon. It's never done that before or since. It was amazing. And I felt as if I were transported outside the plane and was, and I felt Christopher's presence with me. And then I remembered that at the time of Christopher's death, I had planned a trip with him and Jordan, the, our youngest son by car to the grand Canyon. I'd never taken Christopher on such a long road trip. But he seemed to do better and was easier to be with when you were driving than at other times. Because Christopher was always very demanding of attention. But he and Jordan got along really well. And Jordan was easy to be with and easy to travel with. And I figured, this will be really good. It'll give me some quality time with Christopher uh, and with Jordan. And But then he died. And so the trip never took place. Right. And his last words to Christina were, I can't wait to go on that trip with Leo. And I wondered, which trip to the Grand Canyon was he talking about? Yeah. So um, that was an amazing experience. As soon as we had passed on, I called Christina on the plane's telephone, on the air phone, and said, you won't believe what just happened. But then that was it for a few weeks. And about six weeks later, before another trip that I was taking to California to give another presentation, I was awakened in the middle of the night by Christopher's voice saying, you have to tell my story. People need to know. And I mean, like nothing had ever happened to me like that before. 
I was really shaken up. I didn't sleep. I just started planning a book, which was the wrong book, <laughs> obviously, but because it was very intellectual. It was, yeah. you know, um, it was all about researching um, after death experiences and right. what other people had seen. When I mentioned it to Christine in the morning, she said, book about Chris is a wonderful idea, but keep it simple because she knows me. Just write about Chris. We, you know, this is the one thing I actually love about this book. It is, it is simple. You tell your story. It's not too clogged up with the intellectual stuff. And um, it, 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 it's short. And so you yeah. kind of get through it. it really. Like you can sit and read right. it in one go. And, and it's short, simple, and profound. Absolutely profound. There's so many lessons in this book, which we're going to get into when we finish telling Chris's story and your story. So the, um, about a week after that, I had gone to this conference in Palm Springs, California, in the middle of the desert. And um, I was awakened this first night there. I was awakened in the middle of the night by the same voice saying, tomorrow there will be a revelation in the desert. I'd planned a trip out to the Mojave Desert to look at wildflowers with Jordan the next day. Right. And so I said, well, wow, what's next? Well, that trip to the Mojave Desert was a total bust. There were no wildflowers. It was miserable. The roads were crowded. We didn't see any wildlife. We were attacked by these uh, cacti, the poisonous cacti. I went back to the hotel where the conference was taking place saying, okay, well, that was a real bust. I don't know what that was about. And decided that instead of going to the conference that afternoon, I take a hike in the desert outside the hotel, which is a totally gray, colorless um, oven. <laughs> I mean, right. it's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. It's just dust and gray, gray yeah. and brown and blazing sun. Yeah. Um, and I walked for about 20 minutes and was reflecting on all the things that were bugging me at that time. Um, and I sat down on a rock. I drunk all the water in my canteen. Um, and I said, okay, so where's this revelation? You know, like, what, to, what am I supposed to do here? And all of a sudden, Chris came to me. And I mean, it was almost like a joke, you know? And I've, that has happened sometimes during this period when I was communicating with Chris, which would have lasted for about eight or nine months, I think. Yeah. Yeah, actually, maybe that was nine months also. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, I would put something out there almost jokingly, and then I'd get a really serious response. Mm -hmm. So I felt Chris's presence with me. Um, I didn't, I don't think I saw him. I mean, frankly, it was so, the light was so blindingly glaring in the desert that I couldn't even be sure. And, um, and, Chris said to me, follow my lead. Now, to me, that was really ridiculous. And it made me kind of annoyed. So I couldn't believe I was hearing this. What do you mean, follow your lead? I'm like 50 whatever years old. And I'm a doctor and I'm really busy. And you died when you were 22. And you were a brain damaged child. I mean, how could I follow your lead? He just said it again. Follow my lead. And then... It kind of came to me. Now, I had done a lot of thinking about, over the years, about the way Chris was in life right. and the way he was constantly 
challenging people. And it's one of the lessons that I talked about. It was a kind of, and just to digress for a moment, because I had absorbed this at that point, the most striking characteristic of Chris in his way of interacting with other people, and all he cared about was interacting with other people, was he could instantly sense what you thought about yourself and show you the opposite. So if you were, if you were some other brain-damaged individual who was really seemed totally pathetic and, and nonverbal and rocking back and forth and drooling all over yourself, Chris would treat you with such respect and dignity. He wasn't making a show of it. It was just his way of being. This is a person that needs to be shown respect and dignity, to be shown you're a person. I care about you. Mm. If you thought you were a loser, and there were a few people that, you know, a, a, a sort of functioning loser, not a brain-damaged individual, but a person who just couldn't make it in life. And there were people that came along in Chris's world that were like that. Chris would get you to take care of him in a way that you could really feel what an effective human being you were. And that was pretty astonishing. But if you were somebody who thought, oh, I'm a real, I'm an adult. I'm a very mature person. I'm totally in control of the situation. I'm an authority. He could drive you stark, raving mad. He could bring you face to face with your dark side. He could show you that underneath it all, you were just as irrational and stupid as everybody else. Yeah, I know. I love that. Absolute genius for doing that. Uh, <laughs> it's I mean, like you think that you're really in control of everything. I've got life handled. Everyone's at my beck and call. I'm in control. He would show you just how yeah. you're not in if you control. Think, if you thought it's you like, were an advanced spiritual being, yes. he could just show you what an animal you were. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, no. and, and he did it with such, he just went right to, you know, right to it. And he just did it with such, you know, um, he was just did it so definitively. I mean, yeah. there was no doubt about it. It, you know, he could just see it. Yeah. And know it. See so, it. Know it. Yeah. So as I thought about Chris in that setting, follow my lead. Uh, oh, and then he said, teach and serve. Well, that really kind of irritated me because I thought I've been teaching and serving for 30 years now. Yeah, I'm pretty a, tired of it. I want to have some fun. As a celebrated doctor, I've been yeah, right. serving yeah. all my life. What do you mean? I mean, I'm here at this conference and I've been working my buns off to try and prepare, prepare you know, presentations. And, you know, I, the whole spring, winter and spring, I was going to conferences teaching. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Teach and serve was what he did. And I was to follow his lead, not my own lead. And all of a sudden, there was this amazing feeling of lightness that came over me. And I thanked Christopher, and I went back to the hotel to shoot a game of pool with Jordan. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, now I've solved the riddles of the universe. It was, yeah. I'm going to go shoot some pool. Yeah. It was that, you know, you talked about the freedom that comes with brain damage. Yeah. 
So then um, I figured, okay, I would, I would make some time this summer to write this book about Christopher. And I asked people who knew him to give me stories because I wanted to fill it with stories from other people and fill it in with information that maybe I didn't have. And I gathered them together and I spent the next summer starting to write his book. And I took a lot of time off. I was working um, at a beach house that we had rented. And would so I would start walking on the beach, talking to Christopher or, try, or ask, asking him questions. And I would throw out questions. And we had, what was amazing there was, I would throw out a pretty simple question and the response that I would get would be very deep and challenging and difficult. Um, and so I would try to absorb that. And what does that mean? Um, and so I kind of went through writing a, most of the book that way. Well, I went back to the beginning. I knew how I was going to start it. I was going to start it with the moment of his death um, and go through some of the things I had learned about his life at his funeral and, you know, the, all of those events. Um, but then I, as, but then I started to write about these conversations that we had and incorporate them into the book. And, you know, so in, I don't know if this was the first one or not, but I thought about how amazing he was and he, that's when he kind of said to me, well, you know, don't make more of me than I am. I'm just like everybody else. Right. Um, and I, I asked him about um, his uncle who had died. I'm just yeah. like everybody else without <laughs> prison of the intellect. Right. Yeah. Ah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> what he says. <laughs> um, right. I'm still not sure he's like everybody else, but I'm, well, I have to take ah. his word on it. He knows. Um, the, yeah, I'm, I mean, I hope that I'm like Christopher. I, um, the power and joy that emanated, emanates from his being is what everyone would want. Yeah. All the time. All the time. Um, all the time. Okay. Um, there's so much to say. How so? So basically, you're channeling Christopher. So here is a doctor who doesn't believe in this, and then it kind of unfolds. And then when you give yourself a break and take time off, and sort of relax and walk on the beach, you basically start channeling spirit and um, and higher perspective. Because even though it's just a conversation in your head, I think a lot of people, you know, who want to speak to their dead relatives. And they have these conversations in their head. They dismiss it as their imagination. Right. Well, the first thing is, this didn't feel like other conversations I'd had in my head. Right. Because there was a voice. Now, the language that it used was not language that Christopher used in life. It didn't sound like Christopher. Right. But I recognized it as coming from Christopher. And I recognized that this voice is not my voice. Yeah. This is another voice that's in my head and that is saying things to me. And I sort of came to call it the voice of truth. This is the voice of truth in my head. 
Um, and, and virtually everything that the voice of truth said to me was unexpected. It was like, whoa, that's not, I hadn't thought that. Yeah. Whoa, you know, it was, it was all, um, I would ask a question and the answer that I got back was way different from the answer I would have given if I was answering the question. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and then I would ask another question. And, and so there were these series of conversations which put forward a kind of vision of life and, and reality, which I can't say, oh, this was one coherent um, story here. There were a lot of different stories, and I tried to figure out, like, how do they connect to one another? And sometimes Chris would say, you still don't get it. You still haven't, you still don't understand. So let me give you another example. <laughs> um, and I mean, I don't know how much you want me to go into those individual. Well, I'd love to go into them because um, uh, there's a few things I want to say. You know, you talk about he gave you three gifts, the gift of timelessness, uh, the gift of presence, and the gift of what was the opposite, the gift of the opposite. And, the gift of the opposite is so much the most basic, fundamental. And this was really his life. By being difficult, Chris was teaching us something about ourselves. So, you know, what you were saying is that he would show you the opposite of who you think you are. So you think you're silly and stupid, he'd show you your bliss. You think you're really smart and you've got it all under control, he'd show you how you're out of control. Like he would, that was his life, right? He would... Right. And, and, he, and he was that way with people, but he was that way about everything. Um, I mean, once we're driving down Fifth Avenue and he couldn't think of anything else to say. Fifth Avenue is a one way street heading downtown in Manhattan. He said, I want to go the other way. <laughs> you know, we just burst out laughing because that was so Chris. Yeah. And I didn't understand it at the time. He was basically saying, this is the gift, the opposite. However you think it is, the opposite is also true. Understand that and you will understand the universe better than you ever thought you would. Um, and I kind of reflect later on about how Rudolf Steiner in one of his lectures or essays had basically said the same thing, that in order to understand, in order to develop psychic consciousness, I read this, this uh, short essay he had written. Um, he said, the first thing to do is take a walk down a country lane and look around you and realize that everything is either growing or dying. Right. And they're doing that at the same time. That is the fundamental principle of our universe. And Chris was teaching that to me in so many different ways. I mean, that's just the way that he was. Now, that's a conclusion I, have, I came to. Uh, I did allow my rational mind to take the gifts and figure out how do I communicate this. Mm -hmm. After I had written this, um, and eventually um, Hay House published it, um, one of the things the editor said before she published it was, well, I want to get a little bit more about your perspective. That is, this can't just be a book celebrating Christopher. It has to be a book about how Christopher changed your life. Yeah. Because you're the, it's, you're the doctor, the man of science, how did this impact you? And so I thought about it, and, and 
realized that there were these three gifts. I mean, that was my interpretation, um, intellectual interpretation um, of what I got from Christopher. Um, but I mean, the gift of the opposite was just, and, and I talk about the meaning of the gift of the opposite and how essential that is, how it, it really underlies everything. Um, yeah. and, and kind of what its history is that what Christopher was teaching me was actually came from a very, an ancient and profound tradition. This wasn't just what he was making up because he was on the other side and could show me things that in fact, there was a whole, there was a long human tradition of understanding things these way, this way. And I was trying to enter into it and that Christopher had, was showing me one chat, one pathway into it, the pathway of the jester, basically. This is how the jester enters into that. Yeah. So the gift of the opposite, it's really talking about the, um, the polarized world we live in. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's it's like the create it's the creative process of this polarized world. So for every oh sorry, there's a plane going over. So for every, you know, Esther Hicks describes it as there's two sides to, it's like one energy, but there's two sides. It's like the polar the polarization yeah. of it. So in your depression, on the other end of it is just ecstatic bliss. So there's always like and everything in between. So when we believe something, the opposite is also true. Like when we believe it's, we haven't got what we want, the opposite of that is true. Like yeah. we have. Yes, absolutely. Have. Yeah. What I, what I say in the chapter that I devoted to this is, yeah, that is absolutely true. And it's a characteristic of being human, but it extends beyond the human mind. I mean, it's intrinsic. If you, to the extent that you can leave human consciousness out of the universe or out of anything, it's present in the universe itself, even without independently of the way the human mind works. It is just there. And every thing that scientists discover about the universe reinforces that. Right. Yeah. Um, it, this is just the unity of opposites is the fundamental underlying principle of our universe. And other things that Christopher said to me helped me understand why that is. Because of the fundamental nature of God. That is, God is loving. And loving requires the, uni the unity of opposites. Loving the spiritual requires. and the physical. And the the and this came later with um, after I thought I had figured out a lot of what Chris had to say to me, and, and which was pretty profound. There was um, maybe the most profound discussion that we had, which actually okay, I put the book aside for a few months, and um, a close friend of mine was killed in a car accident. A man named Peter who would come up to sing at Christopher's funeral mm -hmm. and who himself was a pretty amazing person with a, a, a striking life story. And I said to Christopher, um, I was really upset. And so I 
went to Christopher and I said, look, you helped me understand your life and death. I don't understand Peter's death. Was this just some freak accident or was there some kind of plan? And Chris said to me, you still don't understand. That was one of the times he said, you still don't get it. Yeah. The concept of a plan implies before and after. And there is no before and after. Einstein used exactly the same words, by the way, in talking about the death of one of his friends. Yeah. Um, that there, although I didn't discover that till decades after Christopher told me. Um, there is no before and after. There is only one moment. It is God's moment. And um, all it encompasses all time. And somewhere along there, and I don't remember actually the details of how these conversations evolved, I asked him what it was like in heaven. That's where the title of the book comes from. And yeah, I he know. was just gleeful. I, I want to get to that, but I just want to, I'm just back, backing yeah. up to the opposite because there's a quote I've taken out of the book. If you want to understand a person's weakness, start by looking at their strengths. If you rely on their strengths too much, as people usually do, because that's what works for them, they create your weakness. This, there is, there it was again, the force of the opposite. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I actually learned from a psych professor when I was in medical school, kind of offhandedly. He said, well, if you want to understand, uh, you know, we're talking about patients, a person's strengths, uh, a person's weaknesses, let's start by looking at their strengths. And I realized, yeah, that, I mean, he was a brilliant teacher. And that is really true, and that is the opposite at work. Your strengths create your weaknesses. Your weaknesses create your strengths are, or create your strengths or can be a manifestation of those strengths. And they're, they're always there working together, opposing one another, but creating this unity. And if you can really understand that, it just transforms everything about your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you see it in relationship too. When one person has developed their strength, it's like the other person doesn't need to, so they become weak in that part, you know, rather than oh yeah, rather than yeah. meeting that strength. I have found that in my relationships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing about the opposite is it, whatever way you choose to look at a situation, whatever facet, the opposites are always there. That is, it's never, well, when you look at it this way, you can see the opposites. They're always there in every aspect, in every facet, in the macro, in the micro. Right. Um, you know, it, it just is the way things are. So embrace it. I remember once when I was a young energy healer and I was having a lot of doubts about myself, a lot of doubts about my abilities and just a lot of doubts about myself in general. And I had read in the book's Conversation with God um, something along these lines. I can't remember the exact thing, but without experiencing doubt, I'll never fully know what confidence feels like. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And I remembered thinking, so this doubt that I'm having right now is actually a blessing, you know, and instead of trying to overcome yeah. my doubt, be better. It's like I embraced the doubt because without experiencing this doubt, without fully realizing my doubt, I'll never fully know what it feels like not to doubt. 
it's like that opposite. So we have to experience both sides of the stick, as Esther would say, to have this rich experience. It really enhances both experiences. Yes, yeah. I mean, it absolutely enhances experience. And if you can understand it, it it's transformative in the way you approach life. Yeah. And, but it also is the truth. It is not as if, oh, here's a way to understand life that will transform you. This is the truth. And to not understand it is to be living an illusion. Yeah. Okay, let's get back into presence and time because this is brilliant. So we were going there with the, with the, with the name of the book. So um, he was saying to you, you don't get it, Dad, about Peter's death. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all happening at once, which is really confounds yeah. us fleshy people with linear minds, <laughs> I have to say, right? It's just like this right, about right. time all happening at once. Yeah, yeah, it's all happening at once. There is no before and after. Um, I came to, and this, what I came to realize is that actually what Chris was describing is the quantum universe as described by quantum physicists. Right. In which, I mean, the arrow of time is just a small compartment in that universe. Right now, we are pinned to it. And when you're pinned to the arrow of time, it feels like this is everything and you're moving along the arrow but it really is just a small part of it. It is surrounded by timelessness. And, um, but it is essential. Time is essential to timelessness. The opposite is always essential. And, and this, is, this is what I came to realize about the nature of God. So I had this conversation with him around the time of Peter's death, in which I said to him, and this was, I was, this was just in my kitchen. I mean, I always had to be alone to talk to, to Christopher, but I was just cleaning up the dishes after dinner or something like that. This wasn't, you know, walking along a beach or in the desert or any profound place like that. The dishes are the best place to yeah, have conversation. Right. The yeah, shower right. and the dishes, got that. <laughs> so I, I said, okay, Chris, so what's it like in heaven? Yeah. And he was just gleeful. He said, it's what I always wanted. Everybody is here. Everybody. Because Chris always wanted to be with everybody that he knew. Everybody. Even you. Yeah. Well, that really gave me a shudder. And then it gave me pause. So I said, everybody is there. So I, you know, had to challenge that. Well, I said, what about the evil ones? What about Adolf Hitler? There's this cold chill that I felt. It was, I felt as if Christopher were having his breath sucked out. And um, there was like this cold wind blowing through the universe, the thought of that. And so Chris said to me, you have to understand the nature of evil. A lot of bad things happen, but they're not evil. They're just the result of the nature of matter, the human selfishness and ignorance. and uh, These things are a challenge to love. Um, I mean, a lot of them have to do with stupidity, and stupidity is a challenge to love. But that's part of what we're here for. Um, evil is different. And then he explained 
the nature of the universe. Now, he had previously told me that God is loving. And because I had gotten into a question about being present in the moment, and what if you were present in the moment, fully present, but because he said that our real task is to be fully present in each moment of our life. I said, well, what if you're really pre pleasant, present, but you're doing something evil, you're hurting other people? And he had said to me, you already know the answer to that because you asked the question. The question itself is the answer because God has values. God is loving. And so evil is not one of God's values. Loving is God's value. And then he went into this. He said, remember I said to you, God is love. Or really, God is loving. God is the act of loving. It is not God loves. God is not a separate being who loves. God is the love. God is the act of loving. In order to have loving, you need a separation. You need separate beings. Because this is not self-love. This is loving. So that is the reason the universe exists, so there can be separation, yeah. which I thought was amazingly profound, and I never would have come up with that. Yeah. Um, the universe, the physical universe exists because physicality is suited to separation. Yeah. The separation allows loving. That is basically God, creation, and existence are all one. There is not a separate God who then creates a separate universe. It is all one. It is the universe, the, uni the unity of, an op of opposites. It is spirit and matter unified, and they need each other. There is no matter without spirit, and spirit needs matter to express itself fully, cool. to express loving. And spirit needs matter to express loving oh there's an aha yeah. moment that's a and, moment right? and that what is unique about human consciousness what is so important about human consciousness is that see god in create god has created an infinity of unique individuals each loved and cherished for its unique individualness that is what loving is about that is the purpose of the universe and human consciousness can enter into that and uniquely understand this individualistic characteristic of every being and, and cherish and love that. That is why we were here. That's why we are here. That is how we enter into God and become part of God and God is part of us. Then he said, but there are beings Love must be given freely. That's a condition for love. You can't coerce it. There are individuals who perversely turn against their reason for existing and hate others because of their otherness, not for any other reason, but because they are other. And in today's world, that is a very profound statement. It's very prevalent that, in, yes. in this world. Yeah. Yes, and, and what Chris said about it is that is a crime against God. That is a crime against your reason for existing. You are here to express love of others. And if you turn against that, and what you manifest is hatred of others, 
you are committing the only crime against God that is possible. Well, and, there's a lot of criminals on planet Earth. Yeah, then. there are. And he <laughs> said, and they are here. There is no separate heaven and hell. They are here and they are, they live in eternal torment because of the schism in their souls, which right. no love can heal. And then he said, you know, there's, there is sadness for the evil ones because of the torment they live in. But I can't say that that in any way diminishes the joy we feel because it was always this way and it always will be. Now that actually left me feeling kind of depressed wow. because I'm somebody that's always trying to improve things. Yeah, and yeah. Whether or not I knew it or would admit to it, I had this feeling that I want to be part of making the universe perfect, making it, making some contribution to having everything get better. And Christopher just just said, "Hey, forget about that. That it doesn't happen that way. That's an illusion that you're improving things. They just are." And so I kind of retired to my study and I sat down. Christopher came over to me and he realized I was kind of sad. And he said, um, you know, Leo, um, you know how you, you like to tell stories about the way that I was when I was alive, and all the funny, quirky, crazy things that I did. Well, around here, some of us like to tell stories about the way that you were and how you always took everything so seriously and always tried to get it just right. Lighten up. You're already here. And so that led to the title of the book, Already Here. <laughs> and, and it really helped me understand timelessness in a way that, that I had struggled with um, you know, throughout these uh, conversations we'd had. So there is no here and there. There is here and there simultaneously. So I am physical and I am spiritual. I am a fleshy person, fleshy white person having a human experience. And I am a spirit hanging out with Christopher in other dimensions. So I'm here and there simultaneously. There yeah, is no right. here yes. and then I die and then I'm there. Right. It's, it's, that's not a destination. It's a not state. a destination. It's a state. Right. Beautiful. It, yeah, it's a state. So, and we're all there. And we're all and there. Yeah. Right. So and Peter, no matter. Back to yeah. Peter. So when you're upset about Peter dying, senseless, incredible man, senseless life wasted from your linear perspective, senseless life wasted, that made you understand that Peter was already there too. Yeah. And then a part of Peter was having this physical life and doing all these amazing things. But it was, so it was, so how did the timelessness help you understand Peter's death? That's what I'm trying to ask, really. It's just, it's like, okay, that's, that's what Peter is doing in this world of the arrow of time. Just like that's what Christopher was doing. That was his time in the world, and that's right. what he did. Yeah. Um, I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And if you only live for 24 hours and die shortly after birth, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. But we are all part of this amazing um, divine state. And 
which is outside of time, which is beyond time and greater than time. And, and we each have this kind of, we are created in the physical world. That is, we need the universe for our creation. We each are different and unique in some way. And there's something special and wonderful about each of us. Even the evil ones have a perfect self. They just, when they are in touch with their perfect selves, they are so distraught by the damage that their evil has caused and the way it resonates throughout creation that they never feel the sense of unity with, with God that, that we feel. That is those of us who have not dedicated, I mean, look, you could, we all, we're all pretty stupid in one way or another and we make a lot of mistakes and we, you know, we can do nasty things and we get angry at people. That's not what evil is about. Evil is calculated. Evil is a way of being. And yeah, and they feel the pain of that. Right. In I, I, I kind term. of, I, I don't know, the word evil, it kind of reminds me of religious stuff. And, and then when we talk about evil, then the whole lot of religious sort of dogma and rhetoric comes into like judging and then separating. But I, I feel like you're talking about distortion, levels of distortion from love. Like, yeah. like the soul right. is infinite love, genius, infinite possibility, creative genius, whatever, whatever, whatever bliss. And then there's levels of distortion of that. And the evil ones, I suppose, are just like the greater distortion from their soul's perspective or their soul's essence. Right. Well, it was Christopher who said that they live in a, a torment that no amount of love can heal. That was, that's not my judgment. It's his description. Right. I have to accept it. Right, um, right, for, right. For what right. it is. Um, I mean, I'd be willing to forgive... I guess I'm a little you know, like you, Leo. I, I kind of want to see everyone healed. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, but I guess it's not like that. <laughs> and the I world that we live in is a reflection imagine. of that. Yeah. I can't imagine that a soul... Perfect or, isn't perfect. <laughs> a soul or a being will be kind of... It sort of talks of this work walking in purgatory for the rest of your life. Um, it's sort of I don't know. It doesn't sit with me somehow. It's, it's, well, look. I, anyway, look. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm not developing a um, a philosophy or, or theology around yeah. that. I'm yeah, just yeah. Relaying what was said to me. What was said? Yeah, exactly. I did try to develop a philosophy of what do all of these things mean in coming up with the with these three gifts. Yeah. And, which is sort of my interpretation of what Christopher was telling yeah. me yeah. and applying that uh, in, in the epilogue. I kind of talk about what that means to me about um, the universe and the creation of the universe. And, you know, scientists talk about the singularity, like there's this moment when everything begins. Well, that doesn't really answer any profound questions because what was there before that moment yeah you know i mean okay I the singularity and so the conclusion that i get from the gift of timelessness is the singularity is now that is this is the moment, moment. of creation now it yeah. doesn't have a beginning and an end it doesn't go anywhere right. it just is yeah. and by the love that we manifest and express 
we are participating in divine creation. Right. And that is amazing. I mean, that is, very, that is really uplifting. Now say that again. The love that we are and express, we are participating in creation. Yeah, we are by, by manifesting and expressing love, we are participating in divine creation because the singularity is now and the force creating the universe is love or loving. It is active love. You know, uh, one of my favorite teachers is Esther Hicks from the teachings of Abraham channeled material. I'm sure you've heard of it. And she talks about law of attraction, but she has this funny accent, American accent. You guys don't say that you have an accent. I'm the one with the accent. But anyway, regardless of that. And often I hear her saying law of attraction, love attraction, love attraction, love attraction, instead of law of attraction. It feels like love attraction to me. And it's just what you're saying, like love is the creative process. Like when you're vibrating love, then you have at your fingertips all your creative power to like mold this physical world, including your body. You know, like the, the, okay, addiction to place. <laughs> right, Being that was... material is what keeps you in your own place, so to speak. That is the essence of the human problem. Humans are addicted to place. Place is everything. The basis of your nationality, your ethnic background, your sex, your religion, your class, your address, your income bracket, your IQ, uh, your SAT scores, don't know what they are, SAT scores. Uh, it's a test in, given all kids in the US. All oh, right, okay, probably here too. Uh, your grades, your degree, your title, your job, they're all designed to keep you in your place. Place is the cause of so much misery and heartache. Pride of place and, and envy of others is the root cause to, again, there's that word evil. Here, this is Christopher talking, place has no meaning in any form. There is no hierarchy amongst angels. Hierarchies were invented in hell. Wherever that is, I sense that he was laughing. <laughs> yeah, he didn't really, because that was a joke. I mean, he did, because later on he said there was no really such place as hell. Even for the distorted ones that love can't heal. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're not in hell. They're not in hell. Right, right, right. Uh, So you wanted to know how um, persistent I was during life, Chris continues. That's another tricky question because there are different ways of knowing. Each soul has a unique agenda, a set of tasks to be completed, a divine uh, imperative. 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 Right, and that wasn't persistent. It was how um, prescient. In other words, I was wondering, did he really know when he was alive, like that business with the Grand Canyon, when he said, I can't wait to go on that trip with Leo, was he talking about five years later when I flew over the Grand Canyon and I felt his presence? Or was, you know, what what did he really know about what was going to happen? So he's explaining to me at this point, um, before that, I had asked him if his uncle Jerry was there with him in heaven. So that's right. why he said, you don't, you don't get it. You know, God, we're with God. God is everywhere. Place doesn't mean anything here. Right. And then he's saying basically the same is true about time. 
Time doesn't mean anything here. You know, we have a divine imperative, which is unique for each of us, but but before and after, you know, that's okay, that's an earthly so, concept. Okay, so so the question begs, how do we live that as in our daily lives? And then the answer, the question I was the way I lived it, in that no prejudice, no judgment of any being. So, like you said, he would walk into the um, place where he was visiting, where there was a lot of um, mental um, sickness, like a distortion, and there were people that like dribbling and like catatonic, ah, and he'd be like, hey, you know, just like talking to them like they were, you know, just, just treating right. everyone equal, like everyone, even when you're catatonic, he'd be speaking to you like you could speak back, right? That was yeah, yeah. I mean, he just saw through that surface appearance of things right, right to the soul. I mean, that's kind of a conclusion I came to, and um, and certainly what you said about um, lack of judgment and openness. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Right. Um, uh, I mean, for me, I'm I'm actually very fortunate in being a physician because every day I get to interact with you know, dozens of, with quite a few people. And I get to, you know, to enter a space of caring and openness that is non-judgmental, that is, um, that, um, I mean, I would say is a real blessing. Mm. I'm so fortunate to be able to, to enter into that space with other people. Um, you know, as part of the work that I do. Yeah. So this addiction to place, did he go on to, I've got, I've taken a few more quotes out of the book, but I'll let you talk about it. (laughs) I've got so many quotes out of the book because it's just like, oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. I just love this book. As I say, it's just the most beautiful book. Addiction to place. I've seen myself get so addicted. I remember I was in my thirties. And, you know, the common uh, sort of thing that we're taught to do is you get married, you have the children, you get the house, you know, you buy the house, you have the mortgage, like all these things that we're supposed to do when we're humans. And I remember being married to the baby, right, got the husband, got the baby, but we're still renting and we were looking to buy a house. And, And real estate is just... It's like New York. I think that Sydney yeah. real estate is actually more expensive than New York or on par. So it just gets harder and harder for anyone to buy anything. And I remember thinking, I haven't got a house. I'm not a homeowner. And how <laughs> distraught I was that I wasn't a homeowner and how it was just destroying my joy. And this was this addiction to place that I was buying into, like just buying into the fact that I'm still a renter and not a homeowner. You know what? late 50s still a renter and I like totally got over that drama because we get so caught up with these things we're supposed yeah. to be and have and do and right right I mean that's and and none of that meant anything to Christopher so that's yeah. and you talked about that's the gift of brain damage as he said to me laughingly you know yeah um, you know I was I was gifted with brain damage so I don't, I don't worry about those things Exactly. You know, that you're all caught up and in, involved in. Absolutely. 
So he's giving you his gift. Like basically he gave you the gift of living it and as your son for 22 years. And then how many years later was it that you were having these conversations? Five or seven years later? About, I don't know. It was in the, I was trying to figure that out retrospectively. And it was probably approaching seven years. Right. It it wasn't an exact seven-year thing in terms of, again, back to numerology. Um, It was, you know. (laughs) You like your numerology, Leo, don't you? Well, Jordan is real big on numerology. Is he? Yeah. To me, I I never got into it, but but he really, you know, he really gets into it. So I know, you know, I know about some of that. Yeah. Um, he talks to you yeah, about in that range of five to seven years, but then it was, it, it actually was just about 22 years before the book actually got published after that. Right. As long as Christopher had been alive. I mean, there is a certain symmetry there. Yeah. So the thing is that, so you wrote this book 25 years ago. Like, was that, no, how many? 20, yeah. 23 or 24 years ago now. And it took you that, amount of time to actually publish it because although you were having these profound aha revelations both you know talking to Christopher and then reflecting on how he lived his life through the conversation and putting it down for the for us to have that gift for us to learn it still took you 25 years to publish it because of you know your 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 place in the world your place in the world yeah your place i would say because of a, my place as your as a doctor as a scientist revered but not just a doctor and a scientist a revered doctor and a celebrated you know and, and i was like, writing other books i'm writing these health books, books you know yeah, and I'm writing articles scientific articles and you know and maybe there's this thought well, if i publish this book Who's, who's going to really take the rest of my stuff seriously? I mean, there were a lot of reasons why we just put it aside, shared it in the family and with some friends and put it aside. And then it was on a computer. And as I, every time I would upgrade my computer and get a new system, I'd transfer it, in, transfer it into a different format. Yeah. And um, then my last health book was published by Hay House, nice. um, and it was it did quite well. It was an international bestseller and translated into a bunch of languages. And so, somewhere along, and I had a good relationship with the editor there. And my wife said to me, "You know, oh, I, a long series of events." But she said, "I want you to print out Christopher's book for the person." who had introduced us to Hay House, actually, because a close friend of hers had just died. And so we, I hadn't read it in maybe 10 years. And so we printed it, I found it, I printed it. Christina and I read it, we were dissolved to tears reading it. It was like, oh my God. My feeling was, I can't believe I wrote this book. This. I, I didn't, and then it was, I didn't write this. Christopher wrote this. We always called it Christopher's book. And um, so then Christina said, you should show this to Anne, um, you know, your, uh, the, the editor. Um, you should send it to her. I bet Hay House would publish this. So that, that was about two years ago. And that started the process that led to its publication last February. 
Well, I watched the interview that you did with your friend and colleague, Dr. David Perlmutter. Is that how you say his name? Dave Perlmutter, yeah. Perlmutter. Dave Perlmutter. About the book, and I cried watching these two professional doctors at the end expressing so openly and deeply the love that you have for each other. And, you know, uh, so he, he's interviewing you about your book already, you know, rather than talking about some health thing. And he's saying, Leo, I had no idea. I know. I mean, I didn't. Right. Right. A lot of people have said that to me who have discovered the book, um, patients and colleagues. Because, I mean, I wasn't something that I taught. I'm, I'm very busy trying to do my professional work. <laughs> you know, so I spent a lot of time doing it, communicating it, writing it. Um, and um, so the question begs, how do you feel now that you've come out of the spiritual closet, so to speak? <laughs> how do you feel? You know, how has it impacted your life, like, as a doctor? And Well, yeah, I know. I don't know to what extent it's changed the way that I practice as opposed to the way that I feel when I'm practicing. Right. I, I would say that it has done a lot to soften the edges of the way I interact with people. So I've always been like very goal-oriented, problem-solving. Um, and um, I mean, and when I was young, long before this, um, I mean, death was definitely something you just want, you wanted to fight this. I mean, it was the enemy. Right. You know, and if somebody was dying, it meant you lost the fight. Exactly. Was, you know, and it's, I've come to, I mean, that whole attitude is, is gone. I mean, I've, partly that's getting older, but, um, well, uh, no, but, but, I, but it's, it's beyond. It's an, aha, it's an aha moment that I, I still have. I remember when I was a young girl in my twenties, I was doing a yoga and I was studying healing first as a naturopath and then energy healing. And I was talking to a yoga teacher that used to go and work with dying people. And she was talking about death in such a beautiful way. And the, the healer in me was like, but they can't die. You've got to fix them. You've got to heal them. What yes, do you mean right. death's all right? You know, they can't die. And I had that same attitude that you've lost the fight if they die, right? Yes, and I remember right. listening to this yoga teacher talking about how, you know, not everyone's supposed to live. You know, death is a, and I remember being completely confused about that. But it just rocked my world and I started asking different questions at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and, and so the, so part of what happens in my interactions or the way I think about my patients is that, um, I mean, each of them is perfect. And my job is to try and help them realize that perfection right. in the world. And, and physical illness is a complex part of the perfection, but also the challenge to the perfection. And so if I can do whatever I can do, using my intellect, using my compassion, to help that person reach a place where they are not so uh, in such physical discomfort 
where their brain is functioning more clearly, where their body is not, um, is not making such extreme demands on their soul. Then I've, then I've helped them fulfill the reason they're here. And so uh, it really kind of changes. Uh, Sure. I mean, I'm trying to help people get cured and it's fantastic when people get cured of an acute or chronic illness. Uh, Mostly they cure themselves, but if I can help them tap into that healing power through the kinds of things that I do that are very medical, nutritional, medical, um, you know, material things. Great. That's very rewarding to me. I have had, in fact, just in the past two days, I've had, I had two patients who said, who each said to me, they had read the book. They hadn't known about it. I didn't tell them about it. And they said, I always knew that you were a very spiritual person, but um, I never really thought about it this way. And um, because, I mean, I don't present it that way, but um, I could always see that you were very spiritual in the way that you dealt, interacted with me. And so I'm not surprised. I mean, that was, um, and that's great. I mean, if, if what Christopher has taught me has managed to um, make it, you know, transform my own, um, uh, the way that my, the way that I communicate with people, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. And it helps me be um, so much more effective in being whom I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So do you see yourself moving out of the doctoring more into the teaching, like to carry Christopher's message out there more? Well, I'm going to leave that up to the universe to decide. I mean, I have loads of work to do um, professionally as a doctor with what I do, it is immensely satisfying and nourishing to me on a daily basis. I mean, sometimes it really wears you out and it's like, give me a break, you know, but most of the time, um, the, but I mean, that's true with everything. That would be true if you were a spiritual teacher. Um, it, that's just the way that life is. Uh, as far as, um, some time ago, a psychologist whom I had referred a lot of patients to said to me, this was before I'd written Christopher's book, actually. He said, well, what you do is psychotherapy. Um, you know, because I would help people try to get control of their lives and work with nutrition and natural um, methods to heal themselves. And he said, yeah, that's psychotherapy. That's empowering people. So, and I've other other patients say to me, um, well, what you do is spiritual. I mean, I communicate it in the, the mantle of it is medical, but the real inner content of it is spiritual. So mm-hmm. I, I don't feel that there's a, a conflict. Will I change the mantle? I, I would let, if the mantle changes, I'll go with it. Um, otherwise I'm fine doing things the way they are now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Oh, well, I think you should tell more people about the book because I love the book. I think it should be all over that bookshelf in the background there. So when patients walk in, they see it and they go, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) So many blessings and lessons in this book, really. I mean, just, just, you know, just having people let go of place. I think that's so important. Like we get so caught up with, you know, place is such, place can be such a drama in our lives. Um, this attack you know, and that is that's hard to explain to somebody that's why i do what i really one of the things that i love about the book as a tool is it's a story mm. it's not a lecture it's not didactic and so it takes you into these revelations by way of story so it kind of unfolds yeah i mean if someone says well boy i'm really you know, I'm really disappointed with the way my life has turned out. I, I mean, what I'm going to say, I can't say to them, well, you know, you've got to overcome these illusions about place. It doesn't matter how your life turns out. No, that's, you know, that's, that doesn't work. It's the person has to enter into the story yeah. and see it and, and internalize it and recognize and find uh, his own truth or her own truth, and one of the things that um, I said in interview said in interviews and writing about the book afterwards was, I think my reason for writing it in the final analysis when I looked back on it was to help people discover the Christophers in their own life. Absolutely. So um, I mean, it's not just my Christopher and what he has to teach. Absolutely. I mean, there are Christophers all around us. And if you can find those hidden teachers of the spirit, open up to them, learn from them, it will just transform your life. life. Absolutely. And they live inside what we deem as imperfect brains or bodies. Yes. they li- it lives inside the children. I mean, the children that drive you crazy. I always used to say that, professional people have a lot harder time having children than like more creative out of control sort of messy people that just go with the flow because children just crack your control drama. You know, they just, they don't like babies. They have you up all night. They're going to be awake. They're going to be asleep. They don't follow the rules, you know? (laughs) And so when you're trying to have have everything, you have to totally change modes. You know, I have, I have a sister-in-law that's a perfectionist. And follows all the rules. And I remember her being on the phone once about her daughter, who's an adult now, but when she was little, how she wouldn't follow the rules. You know, we take her to church, she's Catholic, and the and the money comes around and she doesn't, she holds on to the money and she won't give it back. You know, and people say, give the money. She's like, holy God. And then she, she sits down when you're supposed to stand up and she stands up when you're supposed to sit down and she was like beside herself because this child would right. want and the opposite. That would be crazy. The opposite. And I was on the phone absolutely in hysterics. She's crying with this distress. And I'm thinking it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. And she's like, why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah, she's teaching something. She's, there's a message there. Learn it. <laughs> so look for the Christophers in your life and maybe look at the down syndrome child as the master rather than the oh the poor little thing you know like 
there's a master living inside that body and it has things to teach me uh, absolutely oh dr galland leo thank you so much for being on the show oh, i could talk to you such a pleasure yeah i could talk to you for hours and hours there's so much more to talk about in this book and as i say you know i can't recommend this book more highly enough it's short it's simple it's profound the the three gifts i think are just profound we all need to remember them as much as i think that i've got it all sorted out you know i read things like this and it just reminds me where I'm resisting the opposite in my life or I'm attached to place or what was the other, what was the third gift? You, I said it in the beginning, there was... Um, well, the gift of presence. Presence, timelessness. And, 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 the and timelessness. You know, the yeah. thing that I get attached to is getting older and that whole time drama, you know, like yeah. I look at the age happening on my body and I get attached to that. And that's like kind of time and place, attachment to time and place right there. You know, us humans. Yeah, absolutely. To it, yeah. So it was just a beautiful reminder to chill out and be more like Christopher. Just be wild and free and play more. And that in my play, like, what did he say to you? He said, "Be look, be more like me." And you're like, you were this mentally, you know, disabled. How could I be more? But that sense of play. It's like I'm teaching through my play. play I'm teaching yeah. through my life. You know, that's my message to the world. My life is my message to the world. So such a beautiful reminder. Thank you again. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was so wonderful being with you today. Well, another wonderful show with Dr. Leo Gallen. Yeah, his book is just, the book is beautiful. Well, I was just having a chat to him after the show. Uh, about the future and he was just telling me that he's um, like he's in his mid-70s now that his mother is 99 his father lived to 99 and he said I'm not slowing down anytime soon I'm healthier than I've ever been and you know he's going to stay doctoring forever but I really see him kind of doing a little bit of a tour talking about the book maybe not in the next couple of years but in years to come being more of an advocate for the messages in the book because the messages are profound it's profound I love it I love the book Alrighty, <laughs> thanks for joining me for another show, Accentuating the Positive. And uh, yes, what else can I say to you? Um, Penny Kelly, she was supposed to join us for the Inner Sanctum on the weekend, just passed, but um, she had to look after herself because she'd been working too hard. So she's going, we've rescheduled for the end of Dece December, just before Christmas. So if you want to have a chat with Penny in the Inner Sanctum and uh, join our little tribe, Please join. We've got Laurie Williams coming up who is going to talk to us about controlled remote viewing. Uh, I've had Laurie on the show. Go to the show and watch the interview I had with her. I don't know how many months ago it was, but you'll see it there, either on YouTube or iTunes or on my website. Laurie Williams, she's fascinating. She lives in an earth ship with her husband in the desert in the US. You know those earth ships? You build them out of mud and tires and they're totally sustainable and amazing and it's amazing just to talk to her about that but she's in this incredible teacher of controlled remote viewing you know projecting our consciousness while we're still conscious and aware here it's not we don't have to be asleep or in meditation we can be here and there simultaneously which is what we talked about with dr galland you know that we are we are multi-dimensional we are here and there simultaneously penny talked about that as well when she said that you know she had desires that she wanted to do things like make love to her husband but she was canning tomatoes and 
she wished she could be in two places at once and she found out that she was simultaneously canning tomatoes while another aspect of her was making love to her husband. You know, I, I don't know how that works physically, but all things are possible, right? Life is a journey of infinite possibility when we understand the nature of our consciousness. So, yeah, something Michael said to me uh, on the last show is that, you know, once we find our joy and our happiness, that's just the start of what's possible. You know, here on Earth, we look for our joy, our reconnection to our source or our reconnection to love, the love that we were talking about with Dr. Leo. We're looking for that. We're looking to overcome our stressful thoughts, our negative thoughts and, and feel good. That's what we're all kind of doing here. But once we establish that, once we find the love that we are, the joy, the, the reconnection to the joy, then all things are possible from that frequency. All things like that's just the start of what is possible. So yeah, two places at once, astral projection, uh, controlled remote viewing, psychic abilities. Um, what do they call it when you can move things with your mind? You'll know what that is. Like that's, you know, we are infinite beings of unbounded potential, unbounded possibility. And finding the love that we are and the joy that we are, it's just the beginning of what we can create as genius creators here in this physical timeline called Earth. So join us and let's explore our infinite potential. Love you all. Remember to get the book, the book, the book. I actually sent the book to uh, Dr. Galland because I thought he'd enjoy it. I sent him a copy. Uh, whether he'll have time to actually read it or not is another thing because he's very busy. But uh, it's a great read. I thought he'd enjoy it, and especially after what he's been through. Love you all. Mwah! Bye for now. <laughs>